Mark chapter 13. Uh, we've been in the, the, for, for a little while, the, the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, the, the temple has kind of been, uh, if not the setting, sort of like the centerpiece or the subject or the object of, of what's been going on. We've had the triumphal entry uh, that has taken place, the cursing of the fig tree, prophesying uh, trouble and destruction for Israel, Jesus cleansing the temple, um, and then verbally sparring with the religious uh, authorities and religious types, arguments which, by the way, he decisively won. Um, and, and, and what we last week is how he, he kind of capped that off and then elevated this poor widow's offering um, that, that took, took place in the temple, contrasting that with the, the religious peacocks uh, of the day. And so now Jesus does something. He leaves. He leaves the temple. He leaves the temple for good. And he and, his disciple, he and his disciples are making their way back up to Bethany uh, through the Mount of Olives. And he stops with, for a conversation. Um, and some have called it a discourse, because that is what it is. Uh, it is known as the Olivet Discourse, in fact, if you're keeping score on things like that. But it is one of the most difficult passages uh, in the Gospel of Mark, if not the whole New Testament. And I just want to say up front that we are not going to plumb the depths of this, this entire, we are not going to answer all the questions, we are not going to be able to get there and do that. Um, in fact, uh, we're taking a little bit of a vacation this week, and Paul husband, Big Huz, is preaching next week, and I actually gave Big Huz the hardest part of Mark 13, so yes, um, he will do very well with it, I'm sure. Um, but this is a private conversation going on between Jesus and Peter and James and John and Andrew, Peter's brother. And in a lot of ways, this is, you know, Jesus' farewell address in some ways, right? This is the next stop, really, for Jesus. There's a lot of stuff that's going to happen in between, but really the next stop for Jesus is the cross. Um, and chapter 13 is prophetic. The language of it is prophetic. It is apocalyptic. There, there's, some of it is, is Old Testament Book of Daniel type stuff, right? There's, there's a mixture of everything going on here. Past, present, future, already and not yet. All happening all at once. But all pointing to this ultimate fulfillment uh, in Christ Jesus. G.K. Chesterton, who's always good for a, a pithy, pithy uh, quote, said this, it said, it is not only the fool, it is, it is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head and not unnaturally his head bursts. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. And so that's what we're going to try to do as we go through Mark 13. Try to, to see just a little bit of what Jesus is saying to these men and why he's saying it, where his heart is as he says it. And Jesus' heart here is pastoral, as you might imagine. No shock that he is shepherding and loving uh, his disciples as he speaks of these things. He, he warns, he encourages, he strengthens his disciples so that, that we might persevere, so that they might persevere in real faith. Right? So let's, let's look at this in two ways. First of all, what is really real? And then secondly, how do you keep it real? What 
real, how to keep it real. Let me read uh, Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And he came out of the temple, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not yet you who speak, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will be delivered, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, let's, let's kind of ask this question, what is really real? What is really real? And I don't mean that in like this, I guess maybe philosophical, like, you know, whoa, is that real kind of thing? But like, I, I, the first thing I thought of was the pyramid downtown. Like, not the ancient Egypt pyramid, but the Memphis pyramid downtown. And they were building that thing when I was in high school, and they finished it when I was in college. And I remember going downtown as the I was the school newspaper photographer, and so I went downtown and took pictures of the construction. We had like this every issue. We sort of had an update on the pyramid. Uh, it was a very boring sort of article that we had to run through. There wasn't all that much to see in the space of that time, but going to take pictures of it, and it, it was one of the, it was one of what I like to call the ancient wonders of Memphis. Um, one of which is the Hernando de Soto Bridge, which opened for business the same month that I opened for business, August in 1973. Uh, and so, I feel you, Bridge. Um, <laughs> years ago. Um, like Graceland, right? The wonders of Memphis. Uh, the, the Mall of Memphis, if you remember that. The, one of the ancient wonders of Memphis, the, here's a good one, uh, the Whitehaven Bomb Shelter. Huh? That's some deep Memphis lore right there. Um, but here's this pyramid, like I saw basketball games here. I saw so many basketball games uh, at the pyramid. Memphis State, I started at Memphis State and finished at the University of Memphis, and so much basketball. 
There were there were museum exhibits like Ramses the Great and art exhibits like I saw Leonardo da Vinci paintings in the pyramid, right? Great art like Fleetwood Mac. Uh, I saw them there. Um, it is now a Bass Pro Shop. What is really real? <laughs> like. If the Great Pyramid of Memphis, Tennessee is now a sporting goods store that houses its own in-house swamp, um, like, what is reality anyway, right? Solomon's Temple was, was like that times a, a billion, right? Like, it was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, uh, and, and I can read all this, I don't have any of this memorized. Um, and after the return from exile, they rebuilt it, and then Herod the Great started this sort of fixer-upper project, the end all fixer-upper projects. And that, that was like 19 BC, and that project was still going on in Jesus' day, but this, it was one of, literally one of the wonders of the ancient world, right? For good reason. Someone said it was like a marble, a mountain of marble covered with gold. Josephus, the, the historian that you quote when you want to sound smart, says this, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could, that could astound either mind or eye, for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, five in height, six in breadth. Like, that's the size of a train car. Enormous stones. But more than that, the temple was the center of the universe for first century Jews. Like, there was nothing more real or more awesome. Like, it was that way by design. The, the temple in Jerusalem was permanence itself, right? Verse 1 says, As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful building. Massive stones weighing up to a million pounds. What could move this structure even one inch, right? That if, if mass and molecules and artistry and design all equal reality, then there were few things on earth as real as this temple. Jesus said to him, verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What is it? What is it in your life that if it was taken away, if it suddenly ceased to exist, would cause the unraveling of your reality? What is it? What is that thing? Is it one thing or is it multiple things? Is it, is it your marriage? Is it your family? Is it, is it another relationship? Is it, is it a house? Is it a job? Is it a nation? Is it a church? I think really the question there is, what is identity forming for you? 
Verse 13 is kind of the hinge verse of this. I'm going to be coming back to it. But Jesus in the first part of verse 13 says, And you will be hated for my name's sake. I think that's a way of saying that Jesus is to be our identity. That Jesus is to be that thing that, that, that orders reality for us. Right? Like so much so that, that his enemies become our enemies. That we are so closely identified with him that his, his enemies are ours. That, that to the point of, of uh, to which bearing his name in the world becomes our ultimate reality. Right? That his life and his death and his resurrection becomes the central reality of our lives. The thing around which all other things revolve and rotate. That's to be who we are. He is to be that ultimate reality for us. And we're to reflect that into the world. We're to shine that out into the world, right? Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Listen to this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I think one of the things that struck the disciples as Jesus said what he said to them had to be that sort of fear of what does that mean? Like not just what are the meanings of the words coming out of his mouth, but like what does what does that mean for me? What does that how does that impact me that this temple, that this permanence is going to be unpermanent, right? What could be more real than that? What do I how do I how do I even think about who I am and who this place and what this place is and who God is and where he is? And Jesus is saying that his grace is more real and more lasting and more permanent than the largest, heaviest, most beautiful building stone in the world. Because He, He is the stone. He is the cornerstone. He himself is our identity around which everything else is placed, around which we all are being built up together as his people, joined together by his Holy Spirit, called into the world to reflect his goodness and mercy and grace and kindness and love and holiness into the world. That's what reality is for the followers of Jesus. It's not a, it's not a set of ethics. It's not a set of do's and don'ts, and it's a person. It's Jesus himself. He gives us himself to, to rebuild and build our lives around him. He himself is building this grand temple, this grand dwelling place for God and in his people with crooked stones. You and I are crooked stones. One of my old preachers used to say, he's drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. Like, that's what he's doing. 
that he is refining and shaping us so that we might be useful instruments in his hand as he is building his kingdom on earth. That he does this by his grace, his mercy, his his never stopping, never giving up, never ending, always and forever love is what builds us up and it's what holds us together. And then it's what sends us out. It's what sends us out on mission to declare that grace to the world. To delight in that grace before the world. To, to demonstrate the mercy that has been shown to us, we show to the world because of Jesus. Because he is our chief cornerstone. That's what's real. Now let's talk about how to keep it real. Again, verse 13, this time the second half of verse 13. Jesus says to the disciples, but, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In, in, Reformed, in Reformed theology, uh, we have this wonderful acrostic tulip. And an acrostic is like uh, scuba. You know scuba? It's, it's a set of letters that spell a word that means something. Self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Um, tulip. And it stands for, if you don't know, uh, stands for total depravity, unlimited, unconditional election, limited atonement. Don't you know I read the Apostles' Creed every week because I will mess it up if I don't. So I'm ordained in the PCA, but I'm reading what tulip means to you. So I'm not ashamed. Um, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, right? And that perseverance, like that last one, that's the one that I think that Jesus is talking about. When he says the one who endures to the end will be saved, that they will, will persevere, right? That it's this is a, a tremendous comfort to God's people, this, this doctrine of perseverance of the saints. That, that it means that we are utterly secure in our salvation, that, that we cannot outsend the grace of God. Jesus is not taken by surprise or by by unawares, by the depth of our own depravity and our own sinfulness and our own ability just to, to mess life up. And every time we come to Him, there is grace for us. And so that's kind of what perseverance means. That's why it's such a comfort to us. John, verses like John 10, 28 says, uh, says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Then sort of the, the, the crowning Mount, Mount Everest mountaintop of all perseverance quotes is Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is, it is a comfort. We should wrap ourselves in this doctrine of perseverance of the saints. It's a great promise of God for his people. But it's also one of those paradoxical doctrines that we, we wrestle with sometimes. That's okay. If you are wrestling with, with, with anything in your faith in these doctrines, and, and, and as long as you're wrestling, right? But it's okay to wrestle. It's okay to have these questions. And this is one of those that we might have questions about because on the one hand, perseverance is based totally upon God's faithfulness, right? Because our faith is based upon His work alone and not upon ours. But we are called to be diligent 
as followers of Jesus. It's one of those already not yet kind of doctrines that we hold in tension. Because if you are in Christ, you will endure to the end. But you haven't yet. <laughs> if your faith is real, you'll be able to keep it real. So let's look at four ways. Four ways to keep it real, right? Uh, first of all, keep his word real. Uh, keep a real view of, of the plan. Uh, keep a dependent heart. And keep a kingdom perspective. Real quickly, we'll run through these. Keep his word real. Verses 3 through 6 says, They sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him this question, Tell us when these things will be. What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. I want us to know two things here, right? First of all, the disciples never once questioned Jesus uh, about this prophetic word, right? Their question isn't if. Their question is, how will we know, right? What are they doing? They are trusting his word. They are trusting in the word of Christ because they know Jesus. They're, they trust Jesus. They trust the source, right? They trust his word because they trust him. So that's the, the first thing I want us to know in terms of how we keep the word real, right? So the second thing is the way to not be fooled by a fake is to know the real thing. He talks about being led astray. And the way that we, are, we avoid being led astray is to know deeply and, and, and intimately the one who is the genuine article, right? It's kind of like uh, how in movies the, the art like appraiser can spot the fake uh, the fake painting right that someone's trying to sell on the black market you can say oh that's a fake like they know it's a fake because they know the brush strokes of this famous painter like oh his brush stroke is a little bit too deep like so-and-so never pressed that hard with the brush, especially when using a number 10 uh, fluffy brush, right? <laughs> they know this stuff, right? The way to not be led astray is to know Jesus. The way to know Jesus is to know his word, is to know how he has revealed himself to us in it, to spend time in it, to spend time talking to him in prayer, to spend time meditating on the scriptures and on this person that is presented to us in the scriptures, the Lord Jesus. That if he is our ultimate reality, the way that we access that ultimate reality then is in his word and in prayer and in time spent knowing him. It says, keep, a real, keep his word real, keep a real view of the plan. Verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. If, if, I ever, if I ever get into the, the Bible publishing business, right? If I ever get into the Bible publishing business, I will take a cue from one of my favorite books of all time, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And, and I will print the words, don't panic, in large friendly letters on the cover, right? 
I think this is what Jesus is saying to his people here. Like, here, the disciples are hearing that the, the White House and the Capitol building and the Supreme Court building and are all going to be raised to the ground. And Jesus here is speaking pastorally to them. And he is saying, don't panic. This is life in a broken, fallen world. This is continuing life in a broken, fallen world, right? Do not be alarmed, Jesus says. This is the way. Birth pains. I've never, I've never experienced them, but I've been in the room while they're going on several times. Uh, and they come in waves, right? They increase in frequency and intensity as the time draws near. But they're normal. They're a part of it. Jesus says, don't panic. This must take place. Because he knows something. He's reminding the disciples of something. That God is working a plan. He is working a plan. He's working a plan of redemption to redeem the world. That, that know Jesus, know his word, and also know his character. Trust in the plan. Trust in, in his intentions. So keep the, keep the plan and keep a dependent heart. Verses 9 to 11. He says, but be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. In other words, this is going to happen and you've got to keep proclaiming because that's how the gospel is going to be proclaimed. And that's indeed what took place. When they bring you to trial, Jesus continues, and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. He's talking about dependence. He's talking about dependence in the face of religious and secular persecution. Places that should be safe havens aren't safe all the time. Synagogues, halls of justice, kings and governors, right? But we are called to preach the gospel in dependence on God for our eternal safety. When we face gospel opposition, the Lord uses it. As this prophecy came true in the first century, God used it to spread the gospel even as his people were dispersed, as they experienced the kind of persecution that was described by Jesus here. The people that experienced it moved to other places in the world, and guess what they kept doing? Proclaiming, preaching, demonstrating, showing, living the gospel. And as the church fled, they took the gospel message with them, and so God used their words in, in the middle of their testimony of suffering to spread the message of His grace. Keep a kingdom perspective, verse 12. It says, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. This sounds pretty bad. I'm not going to lie. This sounds pretty stark, pretty, pretty desperate. Right? We are able, we are able to keep it real because we live under the rule of this ultimate reality, this the realest of kingdoms, right? We're able to keep it real because we, we serve and trust in the, the chief cornerstone who is building us up into a mighty temple of God 
his dwelling place on earth, namely his people, his, his church. Following Jesus means start dividing lines sometimes between his people and the world, the flesh, the devil. It means battle. Not arrogant, prideful battle, but battle in humble reliance upon the grace that clothes us and armors us and saves us and sends us out, that arms us with the, the sword of his word, that arms us with the truth of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that arms us with the message that we are, we are starving beggars who have found bread. And I want to tell you where to find bread. This dividing line for followers of Jesus means resting in the work of our King. It means resting on the chief cornerstone by whom we are being built together into this dwelling place for God. So that when division, when war, separation, suffering comes, we find security and we find safety because our faith is founded upon something and someone outside of ourselves. Our faith is founded and resting upon the rock of Christ Jesus, who he is and what he has done for his people. We are reminded of that every week as we come to this table. We're reminded of this gospel message of the bread that we have found as we wandered alone and starving, sure to perish. We found the nourishment and the refreshment and the life-giving bread of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we feast upon as we come to the table of the Lord's Supper. As we remember, as we are reminded, as we are engaged in all of our senses, that the gospel is real. It's really real. It's the most real thing there is. Because Jesus is the cornerstone of our reality. He is our identity as his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that we don't have to trust in our own efforts, in our own goodness, in our own ability to, to do or not do, or to be or not be, but rather, Lord, we are, we are called and invited to trust in Christ and in Christ alone for our salvation. Lord, though everything else might melt away and be dissolved into ash, Lord, your word will stand. And Jesus is your eternal word. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for that security. We thank you for that stability. We thank you for your promises and your character which keeps your promises. We thank you for your faithfulness, your long-suffering uh, dealing with your people. We thank you for your, your sovereignty, your, your most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all your creatures and all their actions. Lord, thank you that it's you that is doing that. 
that you are good. Lord, help us to praise you this morning as we come to this table uh, because we've met with you. We've been reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done for your people. We pray all these things in his name.